You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, January 14, 2021. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing, and I'm Ed Harrison. I'm going to be joined shortly by a special guest who I won't tell you until we get to him. But first, the news of the day from Haley Drasnan. Hey, Ed. Stock slipped on Thursday ahead of President-elect Biden's stimulus speech. All three major indexes had risen earlier in the day, only to give up their gains in the final hour of the trading session. The economy still needs help, and how Biden's proposed plan will impact the real economy is key, especially when it comes to small businesses. The plan is expected to include a boost to the recent $600 direct payments, an extension of increased um, unemployment insurance, and uh, support for state and local governments. The stimulus could be as big as $2 trillion. This fiscal aid will help with the recent slump in economic activity. I mean, today, numbers released, initial jobless claims data, showed 965,000 Americans applied for unemployment benefits in the week ending in January 9th. That's more than was expected. In fact, it's the highest since mid-August and well above the roughly 800,000 a week that we've seen on average in recent months. That number rose by 181,000 from the prior week. And this number, again, isn't anything near the number we saw in April, but it still doesn't paint a pretty picture. In fact, it's four times more than the first two months in 2020. Again, this was pre-COVID lockdowns, but we're essentially stuck at a level that's four times where it should be. And these numbers show that the ADP and jobs reports from December were not really reflective of a deterioration in the labor market. If they stay at these levels for more than a couple of weeks, I continue to believe it would mean a double dip recession in the U.S., and I know Ed has written about that closely, too, in his Credit Write-Downs newsletter. We could also see a continuation of economic restrictions that will sap GDP growth and lead to elevated jobless claims numbers furthermore. There is still hope, however, that the stopgap fiscal measures and a successful rollout of the vaccine will mitigate the long-term damage, but this economic rollback is not good for the short term. Meanwhile, Bitcoin seems to have found some solid support after Monday's sell-off, approaching all-time highs today above 40K, but I'll let Ed and Travis take it from here. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Haley. And welcome, Travis Kimmel, the president of Real Vision. It's great to be here, Ed. Yes. So uh, this is your grand introduction to the Real Vision audience. Uh, uh, You're the newest member of our executive team, someone who comes with lots of things to say, which is why we're having this conversation today. But before we get into some of the market-related stuff, why don't you give a quick bio of yourself? Sure. 
Um, I started out on the, the software side of um, the economy. Uh, a friend of mine and I started a software company in, I think it was late 2015, where we were extracting a bunch of data out of uh, version control for software engineers. Then we would pipe that into a UI that had all sorts of metrics on like how um, software engineering teams develop software. So um, did that for about four or five years, and then we were acquired. Spent about a year and a half uh, on integration work, kind of helping the two companies work well together, and then uh, joined Real Vision recently. Excellent. And, you know, Travis, before anyone asks, because uh, the elephant in the room is, what's in that safe behind you? <laughs> so the funnest story behind that safe is um, some time ago, this was an office filled with people. There's like all this, you know, I mean, there were like 20 people in here working. And uh, and we had, you know, tons of computers, tons of tech equipment. But but um, this this friend of mine who I was working with decided that for the $500 worth of petty cash, we needed a safe. So we got a safe, we carted it in here, and we would store in the middle of that safe just the petty cash. And uh, and ever since then, I found it's just kind of funny to have around. I like it. It's good. You know, like yeah. uh, Ash Bennington, he uh, he has uh, a filing cabinet in the background of, of his shot. That's like his go-to, his money shot. So your, your money shot is the safe. And I, I don't know safe. if we believe uh, you when you say that there's only petty cash in the back. We, well, maybe that's where I self custody my Bitcoin. <laughs> I like that. You know, <laughs> you know that's that's where your you know your password is for your uh, your wallets. Make sure that's that right. you, you keep. It. So now, uh, but, you know, bef before we get into the to the uh, the market stuff, let me just tell you that uh, I uh, when I first found out that uh, you were coming to the company, uh, I understood that you were out there in Durango. And I was telling you that I had a scary experience with Durango. Uh, we were in Telluride and uh, you know, we tried to get out. Uh, we couldn't get out. We got, went to the airport in Grand Junction. They told us, hey, you need to go to Durango to get out of uh, Colorado. So we rented a vehicle and uh, we, they told us, you need to take this road, the million dollar highway. And we were like, yeah, that sounds good. So we sounds went on the million dollar highway. And let me just tell you, I think I told you this before, it was petrifying. Totally. And when I got home, uh, the, I, I, I looked it up. I was like, why didn't they tell me that it, it was like the most dangerous road in America? And uh, and that they talk about all the accidents that people have on it and so forth. So, I mean, you're, yeah. you're in a special location there, Travis. Yeah, it's great. It's like the Switzerland to the U.S., you know, tons of high mountains. And, and, and that road is, yeah, it's terrifying. But awesome. And, and, and in your honor, let me just tell you, I, I have a, a, a T-shirt on, my Durango T-shirt. There you go. So I, I'm ready for you, my friend. There it is. <laughs> um, so let's let's get into the, the market stuff today, because I think that uh, there are a lot of things that are going on that are in people's mind. And uh, here's what I want to outline that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the dollar. We're going to talk about bonds, and then we're going to talk about Bitcoin. I think you have some special things to talk about Bitcoin and specifically Tether. Um, talk to me uh, first and foremost, though, about how you think about markets. Uh, you know, what's your macro style? Yeah, um, I tend to prefer a little bit more of a kind of mid to long range time frame. And I think um, some of that's just that, you know, I'm, I'm relatively new to thinking about markets and finance. Um, and so I like the... I like stuff that gives me a little bit of room to think. 
you know, you get these, you get the Vol gang out there. They're like the cool kids on the motorcycles with their leather jackets ripping around on the waves. And I'm like, I mean, mad respect to them, but I don't understand that world yet. <laughs> so I like the big slow waves. Um, I think the thing that I've tried to do um, first as just a, you know, customer of Real Vision and, and other podcasts and stuff is to, is to be more of a curator of other people's theses. Like you've got all these really big, interesting macro theses out there, um, some of which are pretty compelling. And so I like to sort of let those into the ante room of my mind, kind of fight them a little bit, as you can uh, tell from my Twitter presence, and then see if I can pick the ones that I think are the strongest and weave them into a framework where they all kind of make sense in the context of one another. So that's been my approach so far. Um, it relies a lot on, you know, initially the original work of others who are, who are some of these prominent thinkers, including Raul and, you know, Mike Green and Brent and um, a lot of the people that have been on. And then kicking that stuff around and, and seeing whether there's a, a structure in, with a, in which a lot of those make sense, perhaps through phasing or something like that. Yeah, you know, and I think the thing that we uh, keyed up, uh, you and I, uh, before we were talking about it really revolves around what everyone else is thinking about this whole reflationary narrative. Uh, so when we talk about the dollar and we talk about bonds, that's what I'm thinking about. I just had a conversation with uh, Jeff Snyder about this, uh, how just this whole concept that we're in the midst of, uh, you know, a liquidity induced, uh, a, a fiscal policy induced reflation that will take uh, its most positive form once the vaccine is administered en masse and we can go out of this pandemic period into the new normal afterwards. But the thing is, is the question uh, in terms of the toggle of that, I, you know, it's twofold. One is the dollar and the second yeah. is interest rates. So talk to me a little bit about first and foremost, the dollar and how you're thinking about the dollar in, in that nexus. Yeah. So the dollar is a really interesting one. I mean, um, one of the things that I, it took me a while to kind of come around to was this idea that um, while the supply side of money gets a lot of focus because it's easy to track, uh, the demand side gets less focus. And if you try to unpack what the demand side of the dollar is, I mean, it's a little squirrely, but it's effectively debt. And um, in, in the way that I like to think about it, you know, when money is born, it has sort of a lifespan. So if you issue a 30-year loan, You've issued, you know, if it's a hundred thousand dollar loan, you've created a hundred thousand dollars for thirty years. At the end of which, it uncreates, right? Or if you pay it back ahead of time, that money's gone. And so, money sort of gets gets you open this little pocket of time for money to exist in a debt based economy, and eventually that little pocket closes and the money supply gets smaller again. And so. When, when I think about demand for the dollar, part of what I think about is all of this outstanding debt that's just sort of hanging over us, you know, in pretty much every form. You've got private sector debt, public sector debt. There's a ton of debt out there. So there's a huge amount of demand for dollars, both to service that debt or to roll that debt. Um, and I think that side is a little trickier to quantify. Um, I think if, if you were to quantify it well, you would have to think of it as this sort of temporal layer cake where you've got different variations of demand forward through time. And, and I think that's probably best measured through the yield curve, which is why people pay a lot of attention to that. Um, but I am I'm unconvinced that the amount of uh, so-called printing <laughs> that's been done to date is 
is meaningful in the context of all of that demand, and particularly from a global demand perspective. Um, we think about how the rest of the world who's decided to denominate debts in dollars, whether it's for international trade or whatever, the way that they get dollars is often through the, the action of American consumers spending. Now, American consumers can spend locally and then, you know, um, that the company that they bought the goods from will source those goods from overseas. They can buy foreign goods directly. There's a number of mechanisms of transmission there, but it's still really kind of this, this big, meaty American consumer that conveys the, the transmission of these dollars to the rest of the world. And um, I think Jeff does a really good job speaking to that in, in the context of the euro dollar system, which is this weird kind of, you know, opaque market. Um, but, I, you know, the, the more that I look at the American consumer, I mean, I sit here above Main Street in Durango, and it is just crushed. Like, the economy is crushed. You can see it in the numbers. You can see it by walking outside. Um, and I, I just have serious questions about how that American consumer comes back online and starts acting as a transmission mechanism again for all of these dollars to sort of feed this liquidity back into the system. And I think to the reflationist camp's credit, um, once that happens, once we can restore aggregate demand and get all this stuff running again, I think we could see an inflationary period. But um, I remain unconvinced that we've seen the fall. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a ton to unpack in what you just said. I think the first thing that strikes me is, is when you talk about the debt based system or the credit based system is implicitly you're talking about uh, that loans create deposits in the sense that you know, when you create a loan, basically you're creating money. And uh, and this the corollary of that is, is, is that if all of these banks and shadow banks can create money, then uh, the Fed and other central banks, what they're doing is only a very small portion of the money, the debt-based system that we have. So to the degree that uh, we run into a hiccup and, and you get some sort of reversal there, it's not necessarily the case that the central banks can jam it on and that's going to solve all the problems because they're only a very small fraction. They didn't really have to jam it on to to make up for the entirety of banks, shadow banks, you know, other financial institutions. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, to your point, the, cre the creation of money is also the creation of demand for money. And that is just such an interesting fact. Now, that demand is stretched out over time, over the term of the, the loan. But um, every time you create more money via debt, you create more demand and arguably incrementally more on top of that because you also have to service the, the interest on there. So, um, you know, some of the stuff that the government that the governments are playing with in terms of government guaranteed loans that are ultimately backstopped by, by, uh, by taxpayers, I think that those are interesting policy steps um, that may have unforeseen actions that we can't quite understand yet, but I, I'm still just not convinced that the scale that's being done at is enough to to trigger true uh, inflation or reflation. Well, well, you know, uh, the second thing uh, from everything that you've said that I've unpacked that would uh, go in line with that is this concept that uh, when we're going to add stimulus to the economy, even if it's direct transfers, you know, deficit spending from the government, right. that it really does actually... Uh, increased demand because uh, I was talking to, I think it was Peter Bookvar, and we were talking about the decrease in consumer credit. Uh, you know, so when you talked about the 30 year loan, 
that was being made. So it's a discrete period of time during which you have this money that's in play. Well, you can unplay that money. That money, yeah. you, you're extinguishing money by paying down those debts. And, and so even though we're calling it stimulus, actually what it's doing is it's uncreating money because we're totally. paying down debts, uh, deleveraging. Yep. And if you look at um, some of the some of the data that's come out, you know, people are paying off their credit cards. They are doing exactly as you suggest, and they're taking taking this stimulus money. Which, I mean, if we look at it, it's really more like aid. You know, it's not stimulus. They're not, you know, people are not taking their their checks and you know, investing in starting a small business. Maybe some of them are, but that's that's not really the intent of the money. The intent of the money is we've shut the country down, and people still need to eat. And and, and so there's this very defensive consumer. Um, you know, you saw that jobs report that, that came out. I mean, that thing was pretty atrocious. And so you have a very defensive consumer who's in taking money, spending it on necessities. But I just don't, I don't see that as a as something that will create the kind of competitive force that you need to really, you know, get price competition. It doesn't seem to address this this uh, pernicious issue that we've had um, around the bargaining power of labor, right? Because labor's not out there bargaining. I mean, they're right getting by well you know the the last bit that i found interesting and uh, you know when you when we talk about the dollar that you mentioned is you were talking about uh, global demand uh you were talking about global need for dollars and then you were talking about the american consumer because right there you have a, sort of a disconnect uh we're in a fiat currency system with the dollar as the major reserve currency asset meaning that other countries want to get dollars and in order to get those dollars they need to sell something to Americans, which basically is where you're coming from in terms of the American consumer. And when we're talking about global demand during a pandemic, uh, there, there's that disconnect between American consumers, which are part of that uh, lack of demand and the need to get dollars globally. Totally. And I think that, um, you know, there, there's definitely been some, it's not like the dollar trade has been going well lately. <laughs> You know, uh, it's been the dollar's been pretty steadily down. Um, but I think over the long haul, you know, the, it's it's a little tricky because um, when you've got a dollar bull thesis, you'll you'll sit there and you'll kind of invent reasoning for for why you're seeing what you're seeing up to a certain point. But I do think that there's a there's a compelling case to be made that what we're seeing is um, the removal of pressure to to service those debts, the forbearance. You know the the aid that's coming out. I mean, I think that that has had a noticeable effect on on making it so that people don't need quite as many dollars. But it's still all just kicking the can down the road. And at a certain point, that stuff has to come back online. Right. So yeah, it goes back to Brent Johnson. Uh, you know, I, I was very talking much. to Jeff Snyder. He was talking about the potential for a a very rapid rise in the dollar. You know, a step yep. change where the dollar's here and you're you're playing this whole dollar going down thesis and then suddenly uh, liquidity is needed and then you, you just get yep. a massive change. It's exactly right. I'm sort of a, um, I'm a hobbyist milkshaker. Right, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, tr Travis, uh, the, the, you know, the next nexus in all of this then is uh, interest rates. You've mentioned it a little bit uh, before, how's that part of the toggle in terms of how you're thinking of it? You know, I'd say my my view on rates is a little bit um, it, it's a little less clear. But I, the thing that I um, keep noticing is that there's a lot of really 
smart thinking out there about how about what the treasury market is for. And my current read on on what it's for is that it's basically a a way for really big actors, we're talking like nation states and megacorps, to arb their need for money. So in the same way that you have, you don't really have a price for for oil simpliciter. You have a you have you can go buy oil now, but then really oil exists on a price curve forward through time. And the, the beauty of the rates market is it allows people to do that with money. So you can say, like, let's say you're a giant, you know, you're, uh, I don't know, uh, Brazil. And you know that you, you know, you don't need money now, but you need it in three months. There's a three-month rate for that. So you can basically arb your need for capital forward through time, much like a commodity market. And so um, a lot of people have a lot of savings in um, USTs. And there's not a lot of global incentive to see your savings wiped out. So to me, there's a little bit of a prisoner's dilemma issue here where you've got tons of people who have, um, who have treasuries on their balance sheet. And the minute that they, if, there were to, if they were to start to sell off, everyone kind of has an incentive to stop that from happening. And, and everyone are, you know, the biggest actors in the world. China has a bunch of this debt. Europe has a bunch of this debt. Everyone sort of is in this weird bind where like, they don't really want all of this ag- this value that they've aggregated to sell off. And so there are things that their central banks, banks can do in response to that if it starts to get a little spicy. And I think at the end of the day, we can kind of bank on people to act to, pres- to preserve their own wealth. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Right. And so, from the context of the reflationary trade, uh, how does that play into it? I mean, is that reflationary or is that disinflationary? Oh. Boy, opinions vary on that. Eh? I mean, <laughs> I would say there is there's an argument that has been made that low rates are inflationary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's perhaps the prevailing view. Uh, I don't know that I agree with that because um, you know other schools of thought would say that if you're paying, if you have a bunch of government debt, and you're only paying some little sliver of um, accretive dollars out on that debt. You're introducing less dollars to the economy, um, and so if you're paying, let's say, you know, treasury rates are at ten percent. Well, everybody who's holding treasuries is getting this constant pump of capital from those treasuries as the governments service their debt. Um, when you've got rates super, super low, it's a it's a little bit of a weird situation, right? There's not a lot of incentive for banks to lend. Um, there's not a lot of of incremental dollars being paid to the holders of those bonds, and it feels to me like low rates are themselves deflationary and and they just sort of snowball on themselves until we get into this sort of flat curve world which is just very weird and you see yeah. um you see the effects on the economy start to be really weird because these big insurance pools that rely on rates being at a certain level in order to you know run their models can't really do that anymore um and so i think that there's always this impulse to to save those models by juicing the rates lower because it kicks the can down the road. Like if you can take the the um, base value of those bonds and just like make it bigger, so everyone's solvent again, that's a nice little trick. And anybody who is in charge at any point in the timeline has a strong incentive to do that. And so I, 
I think it's sort of likely that we keep doing that until something breaks. And, and you know, I think of Japan when you say that because we know, uh, you know, they they've gone through these uh, things that we're going through now before we went through them, and what it seems to be is a difference between low rates and the change in rates. So if yeah. you go back and you look at every single business cycle since rates started to go down, on average, the change in rates, the, you know, the step change uh, during the recession was 5%, 5.5%. So it, it's that blast, that step change yep. that happens that gets you through that period. Uh, but, you know, it's not that the low rates themselves afterwards are what's spurring on the economy. It's really right. that 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 blast. And so, to me, the, this concept that we're in this low rate environment is actually negative in the way that you're pointing out. That all sorts of pernicious activity starts to happen in terms of banks, you know, uh, in terms of their net interest margins, also in terms of savings. The fact that I'm not making any interest, you know, int the the private sector is a net receiver of interest. So basically, you're robbing the the private sector of their interest totally. income, uh, all sorts of things of that nature. Uh, and so I, I look at that as uh, as deflationary. Uh, when but when you look at some of the things that are going on in the markets, uh, people are thinking there are a lot of things that are inflationary uh, beyond. Um, Beyond bonds, let's call it uh, yeah. equities, you know, because people are always talking about uh, the wealth effect. What about Bitcoin? Bitcoin uh, going up, uh, Bitcoin running up. Is that a reflationary uh, outcome? Is that when you think about the reflationary trade, do you see that as part of that nexus? You know, Bitcoin is such a curious beast. Um, I, I've been I've been an off and on holder of bitcoin for i don't know geez a decade i think i had a bunch i bought a bunch when it was like 10 cents which i really should have held on to but um went through a period where uh, i was a starving entrepreneur and so i bought like 10 bucks worth when it was 10 cents right and then that i think i sold it when that was three grand and at the time that three grand was like you know mana from heaven <laughs> i was putting food on the table um which is interesting because I think when, as people start to become insolvent, you know, there's a tendency to think about um, about financial markets from a purely kind of like finance brain space, and the finance community, you know, doesn't hurt all that often. And when you and when you think about someone who is going insolvent at a personal level, like they're not they're not thinking about whether the gold they have or the Bitcoin they hold is going to be worth more in the future. In fact, they may still think it it will be. But you just got to sell it to eat. And so I right. think as we transition to, you know, this this insolvency phase that um, that Raul has been talking about, I think that could be a little bit of a headwind to to Bitcoin's price. Um, you know, I've been pretty vocal on on uh, Twitter as a sort of Bitcoin cynic lately. Um, but I, I think if we if we want to think about Bitcoin as an asset, I mean, let's start by what's interesting about it. It's almost this really weird tabula rasa for narratives, right? Like it's just this abstraction. It's a very cool abstraction. There's some very elegant engineering um, that went into it, but you can kind of imprint whatever narrative you like onto it because it's just sort of a container. And the uptake on that narrative is insane. And so it has the it has a tendency to be this really ripping speculative asset, which is just very interesting if you're if you're into markets. Um, 
you know, the other thing that from a cynical perspective is always interesting about Bitcoin is that there's always someone who wants to buy it because that right. narrative uptake is so strong. I mean, it's you can exit the trade, um, providing everyone else is trying to at the same time, I suppose. Um, and then there are some really interesting future scenarios that we're starting to see with, you know, MicroStrategy and, you know, corporations here and there putting it on their balance sheet. I think it's pretty early for that. Um, so that's sort of the the attractive, interesting part of Bitcoin. There's a curious side of Bitcoin, which is that it seems to have lulled. There's something very American, in my view, about thinking you can purchase your way to financial freedom. You know, like that's just kind of hilarious. And it seems <laughs> to be a part of the narrative. It seems to be part of the narrative that's been bolted onto Bitcoin with these big cycles. Um, we'll see how that plays out. But then the things that start to worry me about Bitcoin are they're almost like that Greek mythology thing about the tragic flaw where like the hero's strength is always their undoing. You know? mm. And I think that the fact that the narrative is so strong means that anytime you roll in there to question it, you get met by the, you know, the cyber hornet thought police. Like there's just this aggressive pressure to back down or, you know, it's not it's not exactly discourse. It's just this aggressive pushback um, that the, the baseline narrative is correct. And I worry um, in the same way that it's nice that Bitcoin is open source because open source gives you a lot of peer review on your source code. I, I worry that there's something very closed source about how the narrative is propagated because right. doubters are rejected from the community. Um, and I think that that is a, a form of risk that should not be discounted. Um, I also think that, so, so that, you know, in that case, it's the narrative uptake being both the thing that makes it able to, to do these tremendous price runs and it's tragic flaw. Um, I also think that there's, you know, the, the, the fact that you've got this huge, um, groundswell of people buying into Bitcoin, whether it's institutionals or whatever. I mean, there are open questions for me about how, um, how that's going to work in the face of regulation. You know, right, right now you've yes. got you've got Bitcoin exposure in the public markets, which means that the American consumer can get hurt by a lack of regulation and oversight. And, you know, sometimes governments decide to come down really hard on that stuff. So I think really? there's um, Bitcoin as a uh, a uh, you know, its success is its failure, meaning that, yeah. you know, I've I've long said that Bitcoin 100,000 in the year 2021 is actually a number that invites regulation. It invites regulation and it creates this funny kind of prisoner's dilemma as well. So there's this thing that happens when, you know, everyone's familiar with the classic prisoner's dilemma. Do you cooperate or not? There's a there's some extension on that, on that work where you repeat the prisoner's dilemma a known amount of times. So not, you know, an unknown amount, but we're going to do it 10 times. Right. And for each party, there's this incentive towards the end of that cycle to start being the one who does the betray instead of cooperate behavior. And if there's a if there's a known price target of 100K or whatever that we're running toward, there's a point there where you get where the fact that that's the known price target starts creating erosion as we get closer to it. So, I mean, I'm curious to watch that stuff play out. And on the, you know, on the tether front, um, Ooh, now we're, I, we're we're getting into it here because I, I have a whole, you're opening up a whole can of worms now. Yeah, I, I'll say I'll be I'll be brief and say that um, you know, I discuss that a lot on Twitter, and I do not have a a positive case that there is fraud going on there. I don't have 
I, you know, there's, it's not me saying that there's fraud. I would be very careful about doing that because I haven't been able to find positive evidence for that. But I do think that there are a lot of kind of weird non-standard finance practices going on in, in the exchanges and, and tether the organization, organization itself around audits and, you know, the normal stuff people talk about. Um, there's some weird, like non-standard IT practices. The more we hear out of the crew that runs Tether, it's just sort of like, oh, that's kind of a quirky way of doing stuff from an IT perspective. So I would say there are a lot of open questions. And if there is room in, um, in that narrative phalanx to ask those questions, I think everyone who touches Bitcoin would be well served by that. Excellent. Well said. And I think that you and I, we're going to go down the, the tether rabbit hole now. Uh, and uh, l- l- let's see how we can frame this first and foremost. Uh, the first thing that's on my mind is l- let's frame it through Bitcoin in isolation. OK, let's say when you look at Bitcoin, I think that you told me it's almost like a negative yielding bond. Uh, talk to me about Bitcoin in isolation. Now, let's forget about all the other cryptocurrencies and Tether and so forth. But how you uh, give me that narrative? Yeah. So um, if we think about Bitcoin as a, a singular closed asset ecosystem, um, there is a perpetual need to fund the network, and and you know that basically means miners have to pay their electricity bills somehow. So they're mining somewhere. Um, and in order to run these ASICs or whatever hardware they're using to run to, to mine Bitcoin, they got to pay the bills. And so there's this constant sort of uh, price headwind. It's not huge. I think some people have done the math on this. I, I you know I should have prepared on this, but it's like you know call it one percent or something of the total value of Bitcoin um, is is used to fund the miners. And so to me, it seems like the ecosystem as a whole is structurally a negative yielding bond in that you've got this constant drain of capital. Now, it's not huge and neither are negative yielding bonds, right? But the same community that thinks it's absurd to buy a negative yielding bond and sort of laughs at that is investing in an asset that as a sum whole has sort of a negative yielding bond structure built into it. Now, obviously, you know, the the limited supply is different than bonds because bonds, you can issue more of them. but I, I find that aspect of it really interesting. And I, you know, I think it will continue to incentivize price to run up and then fall off as you get these headwinds at the, you know, in the in the middle periods of these cycles. And so then the, the question becomes uh, you know, whether or not uh Bitcoin uh, well let me let me put it this way. Uh then let's introduce uh so, something else. Let's introduce a, a, another. Let's take it out of isolation, uh, and, yeah. and we're going to talk about tether in, the, in that uh, capacity. Here's how I would describe tether. So, if you let's say that you like gold, you could like physical gold, or you could like paper gold. I will call it gold ETFs. So, if you if you if you want to invest in gold and you want to invest in physical gold, you have to go out, have the physical gold, store it somewhere. You know, have a bunch of guys who are guarding the gold to make sure no one's stealing it from you. There are costs associated with that, uh, storage costs, uh, you know, shipping costs, et cetera. You could uh, get someone else to do that all for you and and just own the ETF. Uh, The question, however, when you own paper gold is, first and foremost, uh, will the government confiscate your paper gold because it's a lot easier to do it? And then the second question is, is that guy who's holding your gold actually holding your gold? Do you really know that your gold is there 
or is there a problem? Has that person been audited? So to me, when you talked about the tether audit, that's where uh, I'm, I'm headed here uh, because we're introducing this uh, e tether into this ecosystem, uh, which is another cryptocurrency asset, which you're saying is unaudited. What is tether and how is it unaudited? So tether, uh, what is tether? I think that's a big question. Um, and, it, you know, that would be a fun panel. <laughs> um, in theory, it is a, a stable coin. It was intended to be a stable coin that was backed one for one by dollars. So for every tether, there's a dollar sitting somewhere. Um, they ran into some trouble along the way. And for various reasons, um, it, it, it's not backed one for one by dollars. It's known that it's not. But the, the current um, claim is that it is backed one for one by assets. Um, and you know, so, which are which are not disclosed the, the precise nature of those. Um, but I think that the thing that I find most structurally interesting is actually the um, it's not so much the rehypothecation side, which is going on. You know, we have a derivatives market and all sorts of fun stuff now. Like most assets, these things get rapidly financialized. Um, but the thing that is most interesting to me is the denominator by by which price action moves. So for most assets, like let's say gold. You're trading gold. You're gonna you're gonna denominate it in dollars. Now, if we were to denominate that in dollars or I don't know, AirPods, right? Something, some token that I you know, dollars and something else. Dollars it's like and the something Wood that has system, a dollar. Like you know, my uh, my French francs. I could uh, you you could give me dollars or you could actually give me gold for them. Suddenly, yeah, I have an arbitrage. Yes. So there's some interesting dynamics that go on when we when we say um, USDTs are dollars, and we are going to evaluate all market price action as if dollars and USDTs are the same. Now, the, I think the bulk of the current price action is in tethers. So the majority of the price action today for Bitcoin that we see on our screens is happening in a non-dollar thing that is being treated as a dollar equivalent. So my only, you know, as a sort of rigid logician at heart, um, my only open question is, is that thing worth a dollar? Because if not, and you got a bunch of algos that are running ARBs on dollars and tethers and, you know, Bitcoin price over here and print tether, Bitcoin price over here in dollars, and they're welding the price of, of tethers and dollars together through that arbitrage action, which happens super fast because it's all algorithmically driven. Um, then you effectively have a you you have false price action in the mix, and I don't know what that means. But the more I think about um, you know Mike Green work Mike Green's work on on the effects of passive, where you where you have these market participants or it's more like non participants that that withdraw a bunch of the units being traded, the widgets being traded from the market, and create this really thin market that accentuates the price swings. You know I, I think about that. I think about how the dominant behavior for someone who has Bitcoin is this hodler behavior, right? And I think that there is a cultural bias in the Bitcoin market toward thinning markets in the way in a way that's very similar to, to passive investing. Um, and so I, you know, I worry that if there's even a little bit of a wrinkle in something like Tether and it's affecting mm -hmm. the price a little bit, that would be magnified by these very thin markets. Um, that are that are sort of encouraging everyone to culturally bias toward removing supply. 
So I was kind of long-winded, but that's no, my no, but very, very interesting. I, I, you know, I think that that is a good place for us to uh, you know close out the discussion because uh, you know it's just like a great introduction, uh, soup to nuts from you know the U.S. dollar system. Uh, bonds and to Bitcoin, how it all put comes together in your mind, you know, really uh, interesting stuff. Actually, I hope people um, make some comments uh, so that we can, you know, have our, our second uh, conversation. Uh, I, I'm not a Bitcoin guy. I go down the, the, the tether rabbit hole. I'd be excited about that. Maybe you can talk to Ash about that because he's a he's a crypto guy. But um, hey, Travis, it has been a pleasure uh, to have this inaugural talk with you. And uh, like hope to have you on RBDB many times in the future. I look forward to it. And I would say, you know, with the comments, I'm sure I got stuff wrong. Come at me. But um, no matter what side of the tether thing or anything else you're on, let's be good to each other. Excellent. Well said, Travis. And uh, right. see you again soon. Bye, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.